Well, hey, good morning, good morning. Um, it's good to be back with you. Um, uh, I understand you've been having your best summer ever. Uh, that's kind of been the, the series you guys have been on. And I hate to spoil it for you, but uh, that summer's about to come to an end. Uh, therefore, you have me to prepare you for that, right? So best summer, me, and then real life begins again, all right? So uh, it's good to be here. Um, I jumped at the chance to be able to come back. Carmen and I were here last year, loved, uh, loved this place, love you guys, all that you're about. And so uh, appreciate the opportunity to kind of be back here. I am uh, really looking forward to getting to know Nathan, um, your new lead pastor. I haven't met him yet. We are supposed to meet uh, a few weeks ago at, at a meeting, but the meeting got canceled because somebody had COVID. And, and so I never even got the chance to meet him yet. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I am, uh, uh, we are in a new thing network partnership, so I know I'll be uh, spending some time with him, so looking forward to that. But I've heard great things about him already from your staff uh, as they're anticipating, uh, you know, what's coming, and uh, so these guys are getting to know him. So, I, I, you know, I, honestly, I believe your best days are ahead as a church family. I really believe that. And, uh, and I think there's some great days uh, coming ahead. And I, I would say this as well. I hope that you will take time, not only in your excitement to bring Nathan in, but I hope you'll take a moment just to honor uh, your staff that's been kind of holding down the fort for really about a year, year and a half. Uh, I hope you'll take a, a moment to appreciate, um, you know, those guys and just kind of doing double duty and all the kind of things that they've done. I know that they've been under a lot of pressure and uh, so really appreciate them, honor them, uh, even as Nathan uh, comes in. I hope that you would do that. And I want to say a word of thank you to you. Um, uh, your church family, some of you may not be aware of this, um, but your church family here um, has partnered with this New Thing Network, and some of that has been financial. And, um, and so you helped me, actually, uh, on this trip. So back in May... Um, you know, as, as Nate referenced, um, I traveled um, with eight other leaders uh, from around the country to Nepal. Uh, we went to Nepal, and uh, together, these nine of us, we trekked up to Everest Base Camp, Mount Everest Base Camp. And I don't know if you're aware of this uh, trek or not, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm not really a mountain trekker, and so it was like, uh, you know, I trained for a while, and it, it was tough going. Um, but uh, Mount Everest Base Camp is nearly at 18,000 feet elevation. And so uh, it was a 17-day trek every day. We're hiking six, eight hours a day. Um, altogether, we traveled about 100 miles um, uh, up there and back. Uh, we had nearly like 50,000 feet of elevation change. Uh, uh, it was really horrible, actually. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, it was awesome, but it was just hard, just hard. And so we finally made it up to Everest Base Camp, this group of ours with our lead Sherpa and a couple Sherpa guides helping us. And uh, it was incredible, incredible uh, trip. But we made this trip as a way to raise money for church planting uh, through an organization called Stadia Church Planting. And our new thing partnership donated some funds for this trip. So actually, you were a part of this trip with me. And so here's the great news. The nine of us, through um, fundraising and churches like us and the church that I serve and other people, friends and family, the nine of us that went together, uh, we were able to raise, get this, 
$625,000. Isn't that incredible? $625,000 to go toward international church planting. Uh, I wish I could, show, you know, I'd be like your uncle, Uncle Mark. And, you know, if we had time, I'd show you all 100 pictures that I have. Um, and you'd be bored to death. But uh, uh, we got to meet some church planters and people that are going to be spreading the gospel in Nepal and India. And so that money was, uh, is going to be able to go and help uh, people around the world. So, and you were a part of that. So I just want to make sure you know that. Uh, you were a part of this trip with me, and uh, really appreciate that, so I want to say thank you to you. So today, um, you know, since you're about to enter into this new season uh, here at Revolution Church with a new lead pastor, and he'll be creating some new vision and new ideas and bring his own personality and all those things, I thought it'd be good if we just spent a moment, and I just want to remind you of something that's so important as you move into the future that's going to be much needed around here from what the Apostle Paul said. And the Apostle Paul said these words in 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 here in just a second if you want to open up and get ready for that. So uh, Corinth was an interesting city. I don't know how much you're aware of Corinth. Um, uh, it sits in like modern-day southern Greece. Um, at one time, the, the, the Corinthians were aligned against Rome, um, uh, but in 146 BC, uh, it was destroyed and it was taken over by the Romans. And then about 100 years later, uh, it was actually Julius Caesar in 44 uh, BC, he wanted to put an outpost in that city of Corinth. And so he put an outpost in that city of Corinth. And, uh, and the city was kind of reborn as a Roman colony. And, uh, and so there were Roman freedmen there, and there were Greek citizens there. And it became a highly cosmopolitan city. It was very diverse, had a very, uh, all kinds of belief systems were going on in that city. And because of its location, because of where it was located, it actually became a very wealthy city. There was lots of commerce uh, from the land uh, routes, but also it was by the sea, and so it was like a port city, and there was lots of commerce there. In fact, by the first century, uh, Corinth uh, bragged about its marketplace being even bigger than Rome's uh, marketplace. And so uh, it had this large marketplace, this large uh, cosmopolitan city. Uh, they had this large venue. You can see ancient ruins. It would hold 20, think about this, 20,000 people could gather in these big venues where they would meet together. Uh, it hosted what's called the Isthmian Games, where the Greeks and the Romans, they would come from all over. They'd compete in athletics, but they would also compete in drama, in music, debating. And these, these, uh, these events brought in some rowdy people, all right, like Revolution's church service, bringing in rowdy people, you know, from all over town. Um, lots of partying. I mean, like picture like Woodstock and, um, you know, like Mardi Gras, um, uh, Sturgis, you know, some of you bike riders. Like picture that kind of thing. That's kind of what Corinth was, right? That's kind of like this kind of setting that was there. Athens wasn't too far away from Corinth. Athens was known as the center of this intellectual culture. Corinth was known as this, as kind of the pit of immoral culture, basically. I think they coined the phrase, like what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, except for the disease you take home with you or something like that. So, um, so anyway, there was the, 
so there, there was this small Jewish settlement in Corinth, but it was mostly made up of people who worshipped Roman and Greek gods. Now, in the midst of that world, in the midst of this world, this very diverse, cosmopolitan, happening city, in Acts chapter 18, and the book of Acts like a history of the church, right? It tells us that the Apostle Paul planted a church right in the middle of this thing, in the city of Corinth. And, uh, and he spent about 18 months with them, and he's discipling them, and he's helped them come to know God and come to know Christ, and how can they live a different life than the life that's being lived all around them, and how can they be, you know, not only just, you know, not in the world, but not of the world, and all those kinds of things, and the Apostle Paul spending time with them. And he had a personal investment in this church because it was in a, in a critical place that needed the gospel, needed an expression of the gospel. And Paul invested a lot of time, a year and a half with them, and he really cared about these people. He really cared about the people who had come to know Christ. And then Paul moved on and he did other things. But it wasn't long after this that Paul began to, to hear about some things that were creeping into that church. And so Paul is writing to these believers to try to address some of the issues and some of the questions that they were having. And that really makes the whole pretense for the whole letter of 1 Corinthians. Now, I, I thought about this as like a side note. Think about this. Like Corinth gets this letter from the apostle Paul addresses the things going on. Do you think they ever had any idea that for 2,000 years we were all going to read that letter? Like, like, just think if somebody, like, you know, if Anthony sent you a letter and he, you know, kind of wanted to say some things, and then every church in the country was going to read it every day for 2,000 years, right? Like, it's like, uh, you know, they had no idea that this, all this was going to be on display. But here's where I want to go with this, and here's what I'm going to say, and then we're just going to kind of see what Paul says about this, is that... And this is so important as we lead into kind of this new vision that's going to happen, is that when there isn't a unity of purpose, when there isn't a unity of purpose, questions and issues can suddenly create division. And we know what that looks like, right, in our country? I mean, we're witnessing it, right? Like the way that people have approached COVID-19, for example. Uh, we had people in our church Actually, when, when we asked people to wear masks, because you know, early on the governor was asking us to have people wear masks, who left our church when we began to do that. They actually left. We had other people that left our church because we didn't practice appropriate social distancing. So it's like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, right? like, like we couldn't get it right. It's like we would do some things, you know, and other people didn't like it. We'd do other things, other people didn't like it. And people were just leaving no matter what side of the coin you were on. What about political divisions? Do I need to say anything about that over the last few years, right? Racial tension, not only in the streets, but in the churches all over the country. A sexuality, gender identification, transgender issues. Recently, abortion. Do you support the unborn or do you support a woman's right to choose her own life? Real divisions all over. Every conversation that we have, there seems to be a a difference of ideas and opinions and theology and whatever else you want to say. And it's important to remember that there is this overwhelming meta-narrative present throughout the Bible. And we have to keep remembering this, that from the beginning to the end, there's this thing called sin. 
that sin entered into the garden after creation, Adam and Eve began to experience conflict with each other. They began to experience conflict with God. They had conflict with their kids. And what we know from that is that people are sinners. And sin is basically described as me first, my will before your will, my will before God's will. It's about me. I mean, that really defines what sin is. And when you and when and me and other people are struggling with sin, our wills begin to collide with each other. And so our unity of purpose is threatened and weakened. And soon enough we find that there is division among us. And that's no different than in the church. I mean, in the church sometimes this creeps in and begins to happen because we, we forget that we all carry sin into this place because we're sinful people. Now, we may have received forgiveness. We may have received grace for our sin and thank God and we worship that and we praise the Lord for that, right? And we may be making improvements, but don't fool yourself. It's still present. The flesh dies hard, doesn't it? The flesh dies hard. We still wrestle with sin. And that sin, that me first thing still plagues oftentimes our unity. Now apparently, this is what's happening in the church of Corinth. This is kind of what's going on. And so Paul writes this letter to them to help them understand how important it is that they work for unity so that they can make a bigger impact in the kingdom of God in the culture that they were placed in. And I think there's probably some good lessons here, even for us here at this time period. So look at chapter 1, if we will. Chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, says this. Now, this is the opening section of chapter 1, and Paul does a couple things here. He kind of gives a little greeting, which is common, he starts by making sure everyone knows how grateful he is for them. And then he begins to address this issue. So let's kind of work through this. Just, I just want to work through several verses. Chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, you know that apostles uh, were the ones that spent time with Jesus and were sent out to spread the word. And the apostle Paul kind of has a unique story, and some of you may remember Paul's unique story, but he did spend time with Jesus. He was commissioned to be sent out, and so he is also an apostle. And it says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes was not an apostle the way that Paul was, but most probably, if you read that Acts 18 passage, he's probably the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth that he talks about in Acts chapter 18. And uh, he was seized, uh, he was beaten by a mob, um, and he was presented to the Roman governor uh, when he refused to proceed against Paul at the instigation of the Jews. And apparently, the Sosthenes became converted. He came to Christ, he was probably baptized, like, like some of you are going to be baptized next week at the, you know, at the lake. He came to faith, the Sosthenes came to faith, 
And now he's working for Christ and he's helping Paul in addressing these questions. And some think that he may have been the scribe or the secretary that's helping Paul write this letter to the Corinthians. This is verse 2. It says, I'm writing to God's church in Corinth to you, listen to this, who have been called by God to be, in his, to be his holy people. <laughs> he made you holy by means of Christ Jesus. Just as he did for all people everywhere in Logansport, Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana, all people everywhere, by means of Christ Jesus, he did this for all people who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. In verse 3, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Now, most people, um, look at what he's about to say. Most people kind of know this principle, if you're in management, leadership, or something like this, uh, this principle that whenever you need to confront somebody, you never need to correct somebody, you should always begin by pointing out what you appreciate them, right? Like you learn this. Those of you that lead, you know, offer appreciation. Gen and genuine leaders are actually genuine about it. Like, they're, like we, I really appreciate this about you because I know you, I've invested in you, and there's something positive here. You just don't go in and rip people up and that kind of stuff. And so, um, so this, is, this is what Paul's going to do here. Watch this. He's about to share some hard things with them. Like if you've read 1 Corinthians, he has some hard things to share throughout the whole letter. We're just kind of getting started. And, uh, but he cares about them. He started the church. He spent 18 months with them. He loves these people. And look what he says in verse 4. I always thank my God for you, for the gracious gifts he has given you, now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Now, even though there's some things they're going to confront, he's going to correct them about, he doesn't question their status as brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 5, through him God has enriched your church in every way with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. I mean, like they were a spiritually blessed church. They had great teachers, they had effective communicators. Verse 6, and this confirms what I told you about, about Christ is true. Now that you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly await for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. And God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says. And he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now those are very affir affir uh, affirming words. Paul says that you have everything you need. He says you need to stay strong. You need to keep at it until the end. And that Jesus is going to help you because God is faithful to do what he says he's going to do. And he invites them. He invites them. Stay in partnership with Jesus. Stay in partnership with Jesus. And they have every right to be confident no matter what happens in their lives. Now, even though they were going to be wrong about some things, they weren't excluded from God's blessings. Let me repeat that. Even though there's differences going on and somebody had to be right and wrong sometimes, even if they were wrong about some things, they weren't being excluded from God's blessings. Now, don't get me wrong. The church in Corinth was in deep trouble. Like, if you read, there's some deep things happening there. 
But here's the point. Paul wasn't writing them off. He wasn't writing them off yet. Now Paul jumps into some kinds of division that they were experiencing. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, and listen to this, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. That word divisions that Paul uses is the word that we translate uh, schisms at times. And um, it refers to kind of a tear or a split. Uh, we know that there are schisms all around us, right? Like we, I just mentioned quite a few. But Paul says in the church, in the family of faith centered on Christ, there can't be any division. We have to find a way to live in harmony with each other. And rather than focusing on all the ways that we're different and all the opinions that we have and the way that you feel about this and the way you feel about that and what you would do, instead of putting my will first, which is the definition of sin, somehow we have to put ourselves to the side and we have to come together to unify, to work together, to stay together, to be of one mind, of one thought, and one purpose. Now, in case you're wondering, let me just say that this, this does not mean that there needs to be uniformity in the church. I mean, you can read, if you read chapters 12, 13, and 14, you'll see that there was great diversity in the church. Lots of different things. See, uniformity is sameness. Replication, it's ten soldiers all looking alike, right? It's like the Stepford, the creepy Stepford wives, right? It's like, you know, creepy stuff. Everything's, everything's the same. That's uniformity. Unity is harmony. Even in diversity or in conflict of ideas or beliefs, it's not sameness. You can be very different, and yet you maintain the harmony of the Spirit. You see, Paul, what Paul is getting at is that the goal is unity, not uniformity. Variety actually reflects the glory of God. And then Paul jumps into a few specifics to kind of give us some examples. Apparently, he got this information from uh, a lady by the name of Chloe, people in her household, he's going to mention her. Um, look, look at this. And there's really like three main problems here, three main problems, and some of these may be here or not, I have no idea. I know some of these sometimes are in my place of gathering, and uh, I don't know, but, but these are the ones that they had. Their quarrels, their cliques, and their conceit. Look at this. Their quarrels, verse 11. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. I, I did kind of a quick search um, on what the definition of a quarrel is, and it's actually pretty good. It's kind of funny when you think about it, really, the definition of a quarrel is this. A quarrel is, is a heated argument, typically about a trivial issue, between people who are usually on good terms. Don't you love that? Like, a quarrel is this, is this heated argument about a trivial issue by people that are usually on good terms and, and friendly with each other. Now, fights can get physical Quarrels are always verbal, all right? And so it's easy to gloss over because 
probably everyone here knows that quarreling just seems to be a part of life, right? Like how many of you would say that you're married or in a serious relationship and you never quarrel about anything? Anybody here? Never quarrel about anything. If anybody raised your hand, you're going like, to get like 100 phone calls this week. Like how do you do that kind of thing, right? And by the way, you know that in relationships, skunks usually marry turtles. Did you know this? When two people begin quarreling, skunks, what do they do? They spray and make a mess on everybody around them, right? Um, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling. Turtles, they just withdraw in their shell. And skunks always marry turtles, right? So it, it produces this kind of conflict, uh, creates all these problems. Now, quarreling is, about, is actually something that God cares about. Like, we can kind of <clears throat> make light of it. But do you know that there are, I looked it up, <clears throat> there are 75, 75, we have theology that doesn't even have 75 verses attributed to it. There are 75 verses attributed where God talks about how he hates and doesn't like and despises when two people normally get together, you know, people that are close together, arguing about something trivial, have a quarrel. He says, stop quarreling with each other. 75 different times he says this. James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Ephesians 4, quarreling, harsh words, dislike of others should have no place in your lives. 2 Timothy 2, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Proverbs 20, it's the mark of good character to avoid, to avert quarrels. But fools love to pick fights. Starting a quarrel is like opening a floodgate to stop before a dispute breaks out. It goes on and on. So the first concern that Paul had, he says that you have these, this quarreling kind of going on. Two people that normally get along, arguing about something trivial, and you're quarreling with each other. And Paul says, you got to stop that. There, there can't be this quarreling going on if you're going to be of unity of mind, heart, and purpose. The second thing was they're cliques. Maybe that's an old word. They're, they're, they're gang, they're pack, they're posse, you know, however you want to say it. The people they hung out with. And Paul, it's interesting, Paul names four factions that people, that were tearing the Corinthians apart. Look at this, verse 12. Some of you are saying, look at this, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, well, I follow Apollos. Some people are saying, well, I follow Peter. And then you have the really religious people, well, I only follow Jesus, you know. And this is kind of what's going on. And it's understandable that there were some who naturally looked up to Paul. I mean, you, you get it, right? Like Paul started the church. He spent 18 months with them. And they said, we follow Paul. We were here when Paul came. And we like Paul. And we're all about Paul, right? And, uh, and so, you know, we're not going to change that. We're always going to be about Paul. And then Paul left. And Apollos came. Apollos arrived, and in Acts 18 says that he greatly helped those who came to Christ through faith grow deeper, and he also powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And not only was Apollos intellectually sharp, he was a great speaker, he's a dynamic communicator, and Greeks especially would flock to him. Now, Paul and Apollos were colleagues. They weren't competitors. But some held up Apollos over their hero, Paul. 
And then some claimed to follow Peter. They threw in a curveball. Peter had the most impressive credentials because he had walked with Jesus for three years before the crucifixion and the resurrection. Some may have felt that Paul was too progressive because of his view of the law. And they preferred Peter, who had a more conservative view of things. And then others, they didn't follow any of these men. They said, they only follow Jesus. We only follow Jesus. Now, at first glance, that sounds good, right? You want everybody just to follow Jesus. But that's not how Paul means it. I mean, that's what we're shooting for. But the, the way that Paul mentions them here is that, 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 that they were the only ones that were taking things to extreme. Like, like, we won't listen to anyone, what anybody else says, any, no other teachers, unless it came from Jesus himself. And had this very pious view of things. It was like everyone was just going to be picking their favorites. And we're being closed off to the others. Do you know that that's kind of how denominations started? I follow John Calvin. Well, I follow Martin Luther. I follow John Wesley. I follow John Wimber. I follow Alexander Campbell. I follow Craig Rochelle. I follow Andy Stanley. On and on it goes. And it even happens within the church with different leaders in the same church. A couple of years ago, there was this couple in my church. Uh, they had attended off and on. They weren't real committed. They were there. Um, you know, they didn't give. They didn't serve. They just kind of attended. And um, one day after the services, they pulled me aside, literally, like pulled me aside. And... Uh, and they said that some of their family was going to be coming from out of town uh, a, a few weeks ahead. They kind of gave me the date, and they were going to be there. And they wanted me to kind of like guarantee to them that I would be the one preaching that weekend. Now, I think there was a compliment in there somewhere, you know, like, right? Like, you know, they're, they're kind of a compliment. Um, but it struck me as, like, really wrong. And so I was, I was kind of, you know, instantly a little irritated by that. And I told them, you know, I said, well, I, I don't know the schedule offhand, and I, I don't remember it offhand. And I just kind of said something like, you know, like, whoever's going to be speaking that Sunday, it's going to be an impactful message, and, and I think they'll get a lot out of it. So, but they weren't content. They were like, no, 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 it really needs to be you. Now, I just got a little mad. And I told them that I didn't know the schedule off the cuff. You know, I do. I lied. I'm just, forgive me, God, kind of thing. Um, but, it wasn't, but, but I told them it wasn't going to change for them. They never came back after that, for instance, if you wonder. Like some people just, like, you're the favorite. I want to be here when you're here and those kind of stuff. It happens all the time. And Paul says, you got to get rid of that stuff. And then there was their pride or their conceit. Look at, look at this. Pride fueled their quarrels and their cliques in such a way that it was almost destroyed this young church. They often expressed their pride and conceit by spouting off about who baptized them. Look at what Paul says, verse 13. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, 
For now no one can say that they were baptized in my name. And then verse 16 is like, oh yeah. And, and I also, I guess I did baptize the household of Stephanos. I love this. Like, oh yeah, paraphr- you know, I, I just remember I baptized somebody else. But I don't remember baptizing anybody else after this. Now, listen, Paul is not bad-mouthing baptism. I mean, he's not putting it down. He's not declaring it a useless ritual. You see, in other places of Scripture, Paul talks about the highly important act of being baptized. It was a picture of dying with Christ, being raised with Christ, and what it was all about. In fact, baptism was very important to Paul. And, and if there's anyone here that is still kind of on the border about being baptized next week, I, I pray that you would, you would think about being baptized next Sunday. It's highly important. Rather, what Paul was simply saying is that he was glad that he didn't baptize lots of people so they, they couldn't claim that they were baptized in his name. And some of the church had clearly lost their focus. They were quarreling. They were forming cliques of who they liked the most. And they were being conceited about it. It was kind of a me first thing that was happening all around them. Now it's crazy, right? This thing can happen when you lose sight of what we're all about. And Paul redirects their attention to the most central thing. The thing that should hold them together in one mind, and that is the gospel. Look at verse 17 and verse 18. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. The gospel stands at the center of everything we should be about. Everything that we work for, everything that drives us, and we have to fight against any kind of quarreling that leads us astray. We have to fight against any kind of click. We have to fight against any kind of spiritual conceit See, we're all broken people. We're all broken people. Desperately needing the grace of Jesus in our lives. And that, listen, and that needs to unite us all the time. But to do so, we have to fight against our sinful tendencies to put our desires, our preferences, our wants, our needs, our priorities, our way on display in his church. See, when we take our focus off of the gospel, when we take our focus off of Jesus, and we begin to focus on something else, selfish pursuits, personal opinions, marginal issues, favored personalities. This misplaced focus, listen, this misplaced focus can lead to division. And division produces quarrels. And quarrels bring about cliques. And cliques fuel even more division. And the result is controversy and conflict. That's not why Jesus came. 
That's not why he went to the cross. That's not why he called us to be the light in this world. But when we stand together and we focus on the gospel and we focus on Jesus Christ and are unified in purpose, then, and when that happens in increasing measure, the cross does not lose its power. And this is why Paul pleaded with the church by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. I plead with you to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought, and in purpose. Your best days are ahead, but it's gonna require a unity of thought, a unity of mind, and a unity of purpose. So like Paul, I plead with you, I plead with you to put Christ first and put yourself behind him. I want to pray for you. And if anyone would like to receive prayer, would like to process any of this, uh, there's a prayer room over here and someone would love to be in prayer with you and, and uh, I invite you to just pray with me. Lord, Father, I pray that uh, you would um, help us. And um, Lord, I, I don't know if any of this was relevant to revolution or not. I, I really don't. I don't know any personal stories. I know that these are some battles I fought in Fort Wayne. And it's hard at times just to keep the unity of the spirit because so many things distract us. And Lord, if any of those things are happening here, I pray that there would be a, a time of repentance, a time of confession, a time of putting ourselves, taking a step back ourselves and putting you in front of us for the season that lies ahead. Great things are about to happen, even greater than they've ever known before here, Father. And I pray that there would be a a unity of, of mind, of heart, and purpose in the days ahead. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've indwelled in us, Holy Spirit. Help us to follow you and to follow you wherever you lead us and to follow you well. And this is my prayer in Christ's name.